If life is a highway, then the increased life expectancy over the past century has made our personal roads longer, more uncertain, and sometimes a little rougher. And now our supersized lives are shrouded by climate change, pandemics, economic insecurity, and racial and social disparities. All of this is particularly daunting for younger people whose life highway may stretch for 60, 70, or even 80 more years. But that doesn't seem to be holding them back. In this special series, we talk with some truly inspiring leaders of a new generation. We ask what they've learned from their families and mentors, how they've worked to make society a better place, and how they see their future unfolding. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, The Next 50. I'm your host, Ken Stern. Given our times, you'd be excused for thinking that life's highway is riddled with potholes or marred by washed-out bridges. But for all the challenges, Gen Z and Millennials don't share that view. According to recent polling, Gen Z is the most optimistic generation by far. And that optimism can come with an energy, creativity, and quirkiness that's hard to resist. Take, for instance, Justin Brezhnev. Embracing the inner weirdo is really important. Kids are quick to call others weird, but your inner weirdo is this uniqueness that you get to embrace. You get, you get to choose this avatar, this superhero that you get to be. He's 30 years old and the founder and executive director of Hacker Fund, a nonprofit that connects underserved students with computer programmers so kids can learn to code. Justin hosts hackathons wearing a cat onesie. His avatar, Hacker Cat. There are students who actually have never seen me outside of the onesie, you know, without the cat suit. There have been times where it's like Clark Kent walking in and they have no clue who I am. And then I immediately change into the onesie and they're like, all right, the MC Justin's here. <laughs> the Hacker Cat is here. And you look at these, these folks in onesies, you start seeing that it's an octopus teaching JavaScript. And you're like, wait, I'm learning this JavaScript from an octopus. It doesn't matter what the human looks like. They're speaking to me about the knowledge that is necessary for me to learn. And they're an expert in the field. That to kids is so empowering because they realize that it doesn't matter what I look like, where I came from, what country my family's from, what language I speak at home, what color is my skin doesn't matter because if I learn this skill set, I can have a successful job and be like this octopus who actually works at Microsoft <laughs> and is earning a very great salary. And you're like, wow, you know, there is a pathway. <laughs> I sat down with Justin to find out what inspired him to start Hacker Fund. Hacker Fund was born out of, I tried to switch into computer science and they told me, you have too many units, so you're going to have to graduate with your communication studies degree. And I thought, wow, the structure here is choking the function of my education. These structures that existed around me, the walls, the too many units, you have to graduate. The, the fact that you, know, you have to get into a university to have access to the curriculum, to the resources, to the mentors, all these things, just accessibility. And I thought to myself, they're not going to let me be a computer science major. I'm going to learn it on my own. I'm going to organize a hackathon for UCLA. And that in and of itself became the inspiration for Hacker Fund. I, it, was, it was realizing that if we go into places 
that don't have access, we can help students innovate their way out of poverty. We go into places where there's, you know, schools who can't afford the kinds of resources that more affluent neighborhoods can, and we provide those those resources in kind. We bring in the mentors from, you know, the engineers who work at a Microsoft or a Google or a SpaceX, and they go and inspire the kids. All of a sudden, you've changed the trajectory of all these of all these students. You know, learning how to code was the fastest way to earn. You'd earn more than your parents did. So that's a that's a very hopeful vision of, of, of opportunity here. I mean, do you, sounds like you're actually optimistic about what this next generation can do um, and be enabled to do if they get the chance. Is that, is that the case? Absolutely. I, I feel like Hacker Fund, we're like the, the X-Men and the folks who are on the executive team, it's like Charles Xavier, who's finding these gifted kids who have this innate power. And we're like, you could be the next whatever. Right. But the fact of the matter is you could be, it doesn't matter what the next is. You're going to figure that out. You know, once we teach them at the hackathons, how to code, how to, how to design, how to use data properly, we inspire them to use their powers for social good. Back to the X-Men, join the good side. <laughs> when you started Hacker Fund eight years ago, you probably wouldn't think you were leading a team of people wearing unicorn onesies or elephant onesies or even cat onesies. So what's been the biggest surprise? What's different than what you thought it would be? The biggest thing that surprised me was anything in this country could be could be accomplished by filing the right paperwork with the right department on time. It allowed me to spin up hackathons in, with the kinds of safeguards that would be at a school district. Like we background check our personnel to ensure that we could do a 24 hour hackathon security. We're dealing with insurance. And, and, and if we know the power of the pen. And empower you know others to use this pen. We become very powerful. Is that why you've become a sort of? A, uh, and correct me if this is not the case, uh, but I think I read that you've become an apprentice lawyer. Um, is that right? Is that why you're doing it? Because you've understood the power that people understand rules and paper and regulation actually hold in our society. That's is that what's uh, driving you? I'm becoming a lawyer by being an apprentice, which is through the law office study program. That is uh, in California, in Washington, in Vermont, in Virginia, only four states. And it's the original way of becoming an attorney in this country uh, before law schools became the primary way of becoming a lawyer in this country. And I've attended no law school. I've taken no LSAT. I have, I'm debt free. And I'm showing people by my example that you can have an accessible, equitable pathway to the law in this country. And most importantly, the structure of our education system doesn't have to determine the function. <laughs> we can build our own structures. So I'm curious as an entrepreneur, I mean, this is a, this is a end run around uh, the monopoly of American law schools. Uh, oh, yes. Does this actually oh, yeah. give you, um, which I'm all for, being a law school graduate, I'm all for that. Uh, <laughs> is that sort of the, the thing you think about, like the future of learning uh, for yourself and for others? Uh, is in more accessible, more equitable ways of learning things that will help you in life. Absolutely. I think that, you know, in a hacker fund, for example, um, accessibility and equitable access um, was really important to me and, and, and remains important to me to have it be uh, democratized. And the same thing is happening in law. You know, it's it's showing it's showing that there is this pathway that is possible 
without having to go through the hoops that are designed by capitalist structures. And listen, I, I you know, I'm, I'm all for capitalism. I, I believe in conscious capitalism. You can do well by doing good. Tikkun Olam. But there is an important distinction here to to remember is that the design of the pathway could be equitable if we design it to be so. We started an organization called the Law Office Study Center that is now helping students gain access to this pathway. It's almost like Tinder meets TurboTax. We match you with your supervising attorney and then we file everything for you so you can just show up, study, and we cut through the BS. If you look at the stats, we don't have representation in our legal representation. You know, nationwide, 5% of attorneys are black, 5% are Hispanic, 2% are Asian. You talk about justice for those communities. We don't have a supply chain of those people to fight for justice. You know, that's, that's the driving force of, of why I'm doing it. I'm essentially the guinea pig. And I realized that, you know, with Hacker Fund, I didn't need to be the guinea pig because there was enough in the universe out there to convince people that technology is obviously the pathway. And if we just go to this hackathon and we go to enough of them, we'll probably get a job at Google. That was very obvious to a lot of people. But with law, when I'm telling them, listen, you can become a lawyer without going to law school. They're like, there's no way. And so there's still this like pushback. And then you're thinking, oh, well, you know, if you go down this pathway, you didn't go to Harvard, so you must not be a good lawyer. Another misconception, just because you went to a good law school does not mean you're a good lawyer. If you ever need someone to uh, vouch for the fact that people who go to top law schools are not good lawyers, I can do that <laughs> for you personally. You heard it here first, kids. <laughs> You come from a family of Russian Jews. How did your family get to Los Angeles? I don't actually think of LA as a hotbed of Russian Jewry. <laughs> I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, but my, my family came here in the late 80s. Um, they're from the Soviet Union, and they're from what is now uh, Ukraine. They're from Kiev. And so it's easier for us to, you know, growing up, explaining to people where we're Russian because we speak Russian. And so, you know, when you're a when you're in elementary school trying to explain to people where Ukraine is on the map, it gets kind of difficult. <laughs> so they're refugees and uh, they got a grant from the Jewish Federation. And so they were given housing and support. Um, the entire family, the entire mishpucha, everyone came through. <laughs> and so you, it was like a mass exodus of, of, our, of our family. And what did your parents do when they got here? What were they able to sort of bring with them in terms of sort of skills and whatnot? So when they first came here, you know, the thought was like, how do we earn money? My father had a PhD in, in chemistry back in the Soviet Union. So he was, you know, working in a lab, um, you know, doing drug testing, drug analysis at UCLA. And then my mother went to beauty school. And uh, very quickly, uh, because of her skills, became esthetician to the stars. And I, my, our life changed. <laughs> our life changed very quickly. So, so, does, so your, your parents I, I probably didn't fall under the, the formal category of entrepreneurs, but it sounds like they had to be pretty entrepreneurial in terms of making their way. Did that shape how, how, what you wanted to do? Oh, absolutely. It, it was, they, were, they were entrepreneurial, but they didn't realize it was entrepreneurship. Um, it, I think that very typical among Jewish immigrant families is you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, and never be successful. That was definitely beaten into me. I was told to be a lawyer <laughs> ever since I was a kid. Um, you know, and, and when I you know, decided to go down the entrepreneurial path, starting organizations and also starting nonprofits, my parents almost lost their minds. Um, I think entrepreneurship for children of immigrants, it becomes a team sport. 
like all of my wins every time I make have some kind of a win or I get a phone call because of some crazy fire I have to put out. The first person I call is my mother because it's like how close the relationship is with my family. So I want to ask you about your grandmother. So well, let's go. We're talking about longevity here. Let's talk about it. She's 90. What did she think of all this when she came to the States? Uh, what your what your father did, what your mother did as an esthetician to the stars, what you did. It must some of that must have seemed fairly foreign to her. Yes. I think I think I think now it's still kind of foreign because I mean, she grew up in an environment where it was like farmland of Ukraine. So she had a she had cows, <laughs> you know, and like a stable. <laughs> so it's and no like, no cows in uh, Venice Beach. I mean. <laughs> no cows in Venice Beach. <laughs> you know, when she came here, the goal was just take care of the family. My aunt has twins. I was just born. My sister was ten, and you know, it, it was it was the kind of mentality where it's like, all right, I will take care of the kids while. My daughter and her husband are going to go and figure out how to make money in America. You know, it was a very, you know, it was a very immigrant mentality of like, keep the family alive and sustainable so the kids can grow up and not feel any shortage. You know, I never, I, I hung out at, at my grandma's house from, you know, it started with like Fridays and then it started and then Saturdays and then Thursdays and then Wednesdays. It just kept increasing because my mother ended up having to work more. And so that was her mentality when she came here. It's just like, Put the team on the back <laughs> while everyone else is, you know, making sure that they can earn money. Just, you know, over the course of actually a relatively short period of time, things have changed an extraordinary amount for you and your family. So do you ever think forward about when you'll be 90 and how different your life will be from your grandmother's? It's fascinating because when I turn 30, my sister turns 40, my mother turns 60, and then my grandmother turns 90. So that all happened this year. And it was, you know, this... Seeing, you know, generations and, and thinking about what am I going to be like when I'm you know, 90? And I think that I'm going to break a lot of cycles. I'm the first generation here, you know, in, in the United States that would own property. My, my, my parents weren't able to do that because they had to consistently work just to make ends meet to keep my sister and I engaged in a school. I went to Beverly Hills High School. To be able to go to a public school like that, you have to live in Beverly Hills. And so my, my mom had to earn a lot of money to be able to keep us there. You know, my grandmother came here, she came here and there's, there's no money that she cares about. She has a family that she looks at and, the, and that's the greatest asset. That's the greatest legacy. It's the family that you created, the people whose lives you've manifested because of the decisions that you've created by her, you know, making the decision to come to this, to this country, put me in this country. Now that I am 30 and then looking at what I might be at 90, I take the decisions that I have in front of me very seriously now because they can really influence the direction of my family and its stability and its legacy. You know, I'm interested in this notion of sort of uh, generational change in your family, 30, 40, 60, 90. Um, you've done a lot in you know, your first 30. Um, what do you want to be able to say when you hit your grandmother's age about uh, who Justin Brezhnev is and what you've done? There was a quote 
that I remember reading in middle school. It was from this book called The Chosen. It was about uh, you know a Jewish kid struggling with his religion. It was during this is Haim Haim Potok, right? Haim Potok, exactly. And there was and there was this quote where the where uh, the the rabbi was like, "Reuben, I just want to be worthy of rest when I'm no longer here." But now, as I get older and I look at my grandmother who's ninety, and I look at her and I'm like, "Are you worthy of rest?" That is the filter for if you've had a successful life. It's not how much money you have, how much whatever you did in this in this universe. Is that by your definition of a good life, are you worthy of rest? And I look at her and I'm like, wow, she is totally worthy of rest. She's looking at her great grandchild, <laughs> and it's like another human organism that is 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 here in the United States and will never feel short. And that for her makes her worthy of rest. When I am my grandmother's age at 90, I want to be worthy of rest, knowing that my family is set up. I have broken a lot of the generational curses <laughs> uh, and have been able to, you know, be that first pebble that has set off this ripple effect that can, you know, ensure the stability of the people that come after me that I care about. So what would you want to say? And this is a question that stolen from a course at Stanford on longevity, where they ask, uh, the professor asked the students to write their own, their own obituary. Uh, I'm curious what you would write um, if you had to write your own obituary. Um, what would you want in there? Justin Brezhnev was a man of service. And that is the thesis. He's building organizations that are inspiring generations of people after his life to pursue computer science, pursue entrepreneurship, uh, pursue justice in their communities. You know, I, the organizations that I create, everything that I put out into this world, I want it to last beyond my lifespan. And, you know, when, when, when I'm speaking to my colleagues on all of the teams, you know, with the different organizations that I run, I, I try to focus on, you know, telling the story of like, we're, the work that we're doing here is timeless work. And it has to be so important that it, that it creates the legacy that we want to you know, leave with the world. And it helps us create the world we want to see. Thank you so much for your time, Justin. That's Justin Brezhnev, founder and executive director of Hacker Fund. You can find out more about him at hacker.fund. In our next episode, coming in two weeks, we explore what it means to joyfully disrupt perceptions about science. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Aaron Bump. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Network. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for Century Lives comes from the James A. Johnson Longevity Prize for Excellence in Media. Recognizing journalism and entertainment, that addresses the dramatic increase in life expectancy in the last century. I'm Ken Stern. Thanks for listening.